Molten Salad Season 1, Episode 7. Welcome to the Molten Salad Podcast. Thanks for joining. I'm James. We're ordinary Americans, living the right way, doing the right thing. But 2020 has turned our world upside down. Toxic dualism is filling the air, and we're caught right in the middle. But there's got to be a way out somehow. I'm a lawyer, so people see me as an intellectual handyman. What can I do to help? Join me as I talk to my friends and learn from them as I explore a third way out. If I have to lose my pride or be open minded when I wasn't before, then so be it. This is our society and this is our time to do something positive. We hope to start small and end big. This is the Molten Salad Podcast. This time, John interviews me. I introduce to you my religious background for the first time, and we talk about why the Christian church has been a follower and not a leader in America in the year 2020. In the midst of the George Floyd crisis, why has the church been relatively silent? Has the church lost its way? And should it still even be involved anymore in social and political issues? What can the church do to be more vibrant and effective again in American society? I'll give you my opinion on what the church has been missing. Recorded July 31st, 2020. Hello, James.、Uh, I wanted to. Start out by first saying thank you for、uh, the role reversal.、Uh, the last couple of、uh, podcasts that we did, that I was the one being interviewed and you were the interviewer. And、uh, I just thank you、uh, for the opportunity to、uh, be the interviewer、uh, this time and you being the interviewee. Yeah, thanks a lot.、Uh, yeah, this will be fun. I get to be the one、uh, answering the questions. So、uh, looking forward to this one. Okay. Well, James, let's just kind of、uh, just get into it、uh, right away.、Um, today's topic is, is、uh, kind of a religion based question. So,、uh, my first one, my first question is、uh, uh, before we get started,、uh, can you give us a little bit of a background in your,、uh, in your religion? Yeah, sure. I grew up in the Korean Protestant church, but. I was that kid that was smarter than average. I, I was the kid that was asking those smart aleck questions like, how is it possible that Jesus walked on water? And、uh, I thought the universe was created through the Big Bang. So, you know, I was the kid that didn't just accept everything that I heard at church. I was the one that was asking all the, all the questions. You know, I'd even ask questions like, you know, what's wrong with cursing or lying a little bit to, to stand up for yourself? You know, everything that they taught me, I was the one asking lots of questions. But fortunately, I had. Patient teachers that would answer all my questions and took all the time they needed、um, so that I can understand.、Um, you know, one day,、uh, one of those teachers,、uh, you know, I, I expressed to her that I had、uh, doubts about、uh, whether I truly believe or not. You know, this was way back in like third or fourth grade or so. And, you know, she took me in, you know, she taught me the role of the Holy Spirit that if I accept it, it will be in me and that. You'll grow bigger as my faith grows bigger. We prayed that I would accept the Holy Spirit. And、uh, I think that was the moment where I started to have faith, was、uh, back as a third grader.、Um, and I was also fortunately、uh, had my dad in my life. And、uh, he was the one that, as a kid, he'd personally teach me the faith. Me and my parents had family worship services on Wednesday, I think, you know, me and my parents. And,、uh, There, there, my dad would teach me you know, Genesis and Exodus and the Gospels, and he'd teach me the faith. And、uh, as a teenager,、um, I was the 
part of the last ninth grade class of my junior high because that was the time junior high schools were going six, seven, eight instead of seven, eight, nine. So I came into my high school in 10th grade uh, when the cliques were already established. So it was hard to fit in. And as a result, I made friends with whoever I could. And uh, many of the kids that did accept me were Christians as well. So from my perspective, it became cool to be Christian and to believe in Christ and to attend church. Uh, I didn't feel the need to experiment with sex or drugs or go out secretly to parties because I didn't have friends that were doing that. Um, and one of those guys invited me to his youth group uh, at his church and uh, I started going and then my parents started going there too. Uh, that same friend in college, um, along with a, another friend in that church, they knew several uh, older guys uh, who went to Berkeley before us. Those guys encouraged us to get involved with church right away as a college freshman. Uh, church and college is its own insular culture because, um, you know, it's good because it protects you and you learn a lot about the faith. And then by going to church, you have an automatic group of about 150 friends that you can uh, hang out together with. I guess today we call that a safe space. But uh, the drawback, looking back, is that I, I do wish I had friends outside that environment. Looking back, I wish I joined, you know, something totally different, like the sailing club or the triathlon club or something like that. Um, anyways, fast forward to age 28, I traveled to Poland on a missions trip. This was the time that uh, this was around the, the Great Recession, and I was really, you know, struggling and praying, you know, to, to find a meaningful job. Um, and I used that time to go on missions. It was very interesting because I saw how the Catholic Church made a really positive mark on the survival of Poland uh, in World War II and during communism, uh, and how John Paul II was influential to Polish society and the fall of communism. Um, around that time, I started investigating Catholicism, and I found that many of, and to my surprise, um, you know, as a Protestant, I, you know, you keep being bombarded with the idea that Catholicism is unbiblical. But uh, to my surprise, I found that many of their teachings on Mary and the saints and transubstantiation, the real presence, were actually very biblical. Um, and in, also, I was attracted to their claim that they were the original church founded by Peter. Um, on this rock, I'll build my church. And I also liked their sense of the intellectual and the sacred. I liked that they were not a rock concert. Uh, I liked that uh, it was a time that you can um, contemplate and, and uh, be with God quietly when you, when you go into a Catholic church. Um, anyways, after years of wrestling, I became Catholic around uh, 2014, um, but I was uh, quickly disillusioned. Uh, though I enjoyed Theology on Tap, which is basically a large group Catholic TED Talk with beer, unfortunately, I realized that instead of unity, I found liturgical division. Instead of community, I found loneliness because I was a misfit as an adult convert. Instead of clarity, I found confusion as the bishops have different opinions on social issues. The Catholic Church is in shambles, unfortunately. It's no longer the vibrant church it used to be. And I made a decision uh, a few years later that although I like many of the Catholic teachings, I needed to return to Protestantism where the practice of faith and the sense of community is more vibrant. And you know, today it's not all smooth sailing. I'm not as innocent as people think I am. Every day I question why I should remain faithful in a world that chooses not to believe. But I'm also reminded of how God has worked miracles in the lives of me and others. I'm reminded that I'm a, I'm a person that needs God. And I agree that there's a world beyond the natural world. I can't control that everything, everything that goes on in my life. I wouldn't be good at it. 
I wouldn't want to control everything and therefore I trust God with it. And that's why I haven't left Christianity for the same reason that I haven't left California. They are both my home state. Wow, that's uh, quite a very clear uh, uh, background, James. I thank you for that. And I, I just wanted to ask a really quick question. Uh, while you were uh, navigating Christianity as a Protestant and as a Catholic, was it was race a a deciding factor for which church you would uh, attend? Wow, that's an interesting question. Uh, as um, growing up in the Korean Protestant church, and you know, it was an insular environment. Um, uh, they were very honest about themselves. The uh, the the Korean American church, so so the the second gen kids that were born in the U.S. and speak primarily English, you know, we had an English department where the pastors and the services were and the songs were done in English, and that was separate from the Korean department where the services and the singing was done in Korean. And and the English department, you know, it was very honest with itself. It was very honest about rationalizing its own existence. Um, you know. Yes, there is a need for immigrant communities that uh, that do not speak English and have uh, have a language barrier, you know, for them to meet and uh, um, have service in the language that they're comfortable with. But you know, what if you do speak English? You know, um, we the Korean American Church has quickly realized that uh, yeah, there is no need for th for the church to remain a Korean church, and um, it has. Uh, many Korean American churches in LA have uh, done done the work and the paperwork to become independent, uh, to be financially independent with their own elders, um, and to rename themselves uh, using um, uh, uh, names in English. Uh, you wouldn't be able to uh, tell that it's a Korean church simply by its name alone. Um, this is all in an effort to uh, be more multi-ethnic uh, because they realize, hey, as long as we speak English, there is no need to uh, segregate. Um, heaven is multi-ethnic. Uh, so uh, yeah, there's no need to segregate at all. Um, now, I think, uh, we're, I think we naturally gravitate to people that, you know, we can relate to. Um, uh, you know, I, it was around age 28 when I went to Poland that I uh, went to uh, a Shepherd Church, uh, which is a uh, large megachurch uh, up north uh, in the San Fernando Valley, um, and they're incredibly diverse, uh, and uh, it was a welcome change from uh, the uh, the Korean church. Um, you know, it was it was a very welcome change to learn uh, various perspectives, um, to make friends with people that were different from me, and to learn more about their lives, and uh, to uh, really learn from each other. And uh, um, it was a uh, yeah, it was a it was a productive time, you know, because uh, I I think I gained a lot from being um, in a diverse environment. Uh, but uh, even within a diverse environment, you know, you 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 gravitate toward people that you could relate to. Uh, there are still um, um, differences when it comes to uh, uh, education level, for example. You know, um, if 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 somebody has you know a graduate school education. Um, then, you know, he, then, and, and somebody else has only a high school education, you know, there, there's going to be some, uh, you're going to have to be really intentional, you know, to be able to 
to relate. You know, someone with someone who has a high school education might not uh, be able to uh, fully understand your struggle and why you valued school so much and why you decided to go to school for so long. You know, after all, he he was able to make money with only a high school education. So there are those kinds of um, cultural differences like that that you need to uh, make effort to uh, uh, be able to relate with. Okay, so I, I, I hear what you're saying loud and clear. Um, it, race is just one of the issues uh, in choosing a church or, or not choosing uh, a group to belong to. So I could see that. But the reason why I, I asked you that question is, is now because I'm leading into the main question that I want uh, you to answer is uh, I, I, I think that there were there. I, I see today we have the Black Lives Matter movement as a race uh, related political and economic social economic issue. And what I noticed was this was quite different than the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s um, with the involvement of, of Christendom. It seemed like in the 60s, uh, you know, Reverend Martin Luther King was leading the charge. And today, uh, there's not even one pastor that I can even uh, recollect that is leading the Black Lives Matter movement. So, James, a question to you is, uh, do you see a difference between Christianity's involvement in the civil rights movement in the 60s and today's BLM movement? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's said that the white church has been resistant over the years to the civil rights movement and complicit in the issues of uh, racial inequality, but that alone does not erase the fact that the black Christian church has played a huge role in the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King was a Christian. You cannot escape the fact that the civil rights movement was influenced by the Christian idea that we are all children of God. But unfortunately, uh, now the Christian church is not leading, but instead it's a follower. It's following whatever trends emerge on the news and social media in an effort to keep people in the pews. Um, let me make clear that the BLM, yes, yes, Black Lives do matter, but the BLM organization is very anti-Christian. And it's very frustrating to see how so many people in today's church have supported the BLM organization it's frustrating to see how today's church is feeling pressure to be quote, politically correct or woke to uh, keep members in the pews. Um, fortunately, many Christians have come around because they realize the deception, but all you had to do is to go to the BLM organization website and click on what they believe. Uh, they are very honest about it. One of their biggest tenets is to replace the nuclear family, which they allege is a white Western idea which is allegedly harmful to blacks. They want to replace that with, quote, the village. But what is the village? Well, basically it's government, the government taking over the role of the family. That sounds straight off the Marxist playbook. The BLM organization stance on family values and gender is also contrary to Christian teaching. The Proverbs preach a great deal about family and how to raise your family. You know, in Christianity, God is family. God is a father and he has a son named Jesus. And uh, Catholics understand as Protestants overlook that Jesus the son also has a mother Mary who has a high position and that Jesus honored his mother while he was alive on this earth and he, and he made sure that Mary was taken care of before he died. 
God is a father. God knows that family is the way that the faith is taught. And a healthy family is crucial uh, to promote uh, the healthiness of humans. And the BLM, the, the BLM organization, by taking away nuclear family, they want to make us all fatherlessness, uh, fatherless. And uh, we know how much fatherlessness has contributed to uh, the problems of uh, today's people. Um, in, in the 1960s, the, the motive was to make a more perfect version of this country by, if we could adhere more closely to the idea in the Declaration of Independence that all people are created equal. In, in the 60s, you know, people, uh, the idea was to adhere more closely to the ideals of this country. But today, uh, the BLM organization, along with Antifa and other groups, they're all about promoting a narrative that this country's government, this country's economic systems are flawed to the core. They want to destroy them and rebuild them again. But what do they wish to rebuild it to? That's the big question, because I'm only going to support it if uh, the replacement is better, and I'm not so confident that the replacement will be better. So I, I wanted to touch upon your point about uh, BLM's belief in the, uh, dismantling the nuclear family and replacing it with the village. I, I, I disagree that uh, this is a foreign or a far from reality or Marxist um, point. I, I, I look at like, for example, being Asian myself, uh, in anybody that's in my parents' age, I call them aunt or uncle, or anyone that's in my grandparents' age, I call them uh, grandma, grandpa, and, and my age, brother and sister, and younger me, niece and nephew, cousin, whatever it is. Uh, and we have that kind of hierarchical respect all throughout um, the village and in Asia and Vietnam, this was very localized to where you lived and to the neighborhood that you belonged to. And kids would just run about and they would play with one another. And if they got disciplined, all the kids got disciplined together by all the parents and whoever was available that was taking care of them or watching over them. And I think this idea uh, has spilled over into America now because I don't know anybody with a nuclear family. Um, even myself, my, my, my parents, we, there's three sets of kids. My dad has his own and my mom has her own. And then they both have the three of us in the middle. And uh, it's like a very Brady Bunch or even more than the Brady Bunch type family. So I, I, I don't think that it's such a Marxist idea so much as it's just conforming to reality because there's a lot of psychological issues that are coming out of the fact that there's so much pressure that there has to be a two parent, one mother, one father, uh, family, nuclear family with two kids with 2.5 cars uh, and a home and a white picket fence that when that doesn't become reality, it, people feel like they've missed the mark in, in society. Um, and then they'll start looking for other explanations such as I should have went to school more or it was, you know, or they'll blame their parents. Oh, if my parents were just got along better, I would have had a better life. Um, so, so, so I, 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 I don't really necessarily agree that uh, it, it's a Marxist uh, agree, agreement or if it's negative, if it's a white value being applied to uh, black families, um, but more of a general sense of, hey, people, let's start the healing process together and we are one big family. 
So I don't, uh, um, you know, I don't discredit the, the value of the broader community in, in one's life. You're speaking of, you know, your extended family and the role of community um, in life. Um, however, that's uh, to be distinguished from the government uh, and, and using public money um, for the government to play the role of being the family and the community and using public money to uh, entrust the government with teaching us uh, proper values. See, the, 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 the private community and the family that you were a part of, um, it largely uh, was held together by, by a common culture and common values. But once you, know, once you entrust that uh, to the government, um, I, think that's, I think that could lead to some, some dangerous results because once you entrust that to government, who knows what the government's gonna, gonna do with it? Who knows how, who knows how the government is gonna be able to uh, 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 teach values to your children? And, and in, in terms of the nuclear family, um, no one is saying that you're a, you're a worse person or that uh, you're not as good of a person because you didn't have both parents in your lives. Nobody would dare say something like that. However, um, studies have shown that children that do have both parents, uh, they fare better uh, when it comes to uh, education or career or health issues or psychological issues. Um, uh, avoiding jail, for example, um, children with both parents tend to avoid uh, a lot of a lot of uh, these problems and and fare better. So, um, I think it behooves us to ask ourselves, what are what are the causes of fatherlessness in our society, and what can we do to uh, uh, bring back uh, the role of both the father and mother? I I, I see your point. So. Going back to the original question, I, I originally asked you if there was a difference between the, the civil rights movement in the 60s and today's uh, BLM movement um, and, and Christianity's involvement in that. And uh, I was just wondering, should Christianity be involved in today's uh, race relations, uh, social economic uh, discussion? Should they present an, a voice that may be an alternative to BLM or to Antifa or the other groups that you're talking about. Um, the reason why I ask you this is because, again, I, I see an absence of, of, of this voice. And, and before, Christianity was the first so social mover on, on these issues, and now we don't see them. So should they uh, be involved in today's uh, societal issues, James? Well, ideally, yes. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the Christian church is supposed to be the salt and light of the earth. However, uh, it's definitely lost its saltiness um, uh, simply because many people have fallen away. Um, in 2000, about 80% of Americans have checked the box to say that they're Christian. We're just talking about those that check the box, not necessarily practice their faith. In 2000, it was about 80%. In 2010, it dropped to 70%. And in 2020, it is about 60%. Um, and there's, there's many reasons for this. Um, we like to blame the 60s, but I think Americans have made the mistake of uh, entrusting their children to the schools and not taking the lead in teaching their children the faith. Um, I said earlier, the reason why I still believe is because the role my dad played in teaching me the faith. Um, but you know, to, go back in, um, to go back and directly answer the question, of course, uh, you know, there's definitely a need for a 
third voice, a very simple voice, you know, um, we could we could say simple things like, um, you know, stop the violence, um, increase the peace. You know, we're all children of God. We are all equal. Let's all love one another. Uh, there's lots of room for the church to preach simple messages like that, but uh, it doesn't seem to be doing so. It seems to be uh, a follower and not a leader and seems to be following whatever uh, issues are popular on the news and social media. You mentioned Christianity lost its saltiness. Do you think it's possible that uh, they lost their war against abortion and sexual orientation, that uh, their message is pretty much uh, been blended in uh, or been taken over by uh, the general population versus the religious right? Well, I think it's lost its saltiness simply because it's smaller. You know, I was going back to the percentages. Um, it's dropped to 60% uh, in America that have, that checked the box that they're Christian. Now we're just talking about checking the box, not practicing. It used to be 80% 20 years ago. Now it's about 60%. And, um, you know, we, and there's many reasons why, you know, so many people have left the church. You know, um, we have entrusted our children to the schools, unfortunately. Uh, schools have embraced um, postmodernism, and not all the teachers that they hire are Christian. Uh, they often follow the views of the secular left. They're, they're followers, not leaders. And uh, the role in teaching the faith to students has fallen to the wayside. Uh, you know, all school prayer is banned uh, by the Supreme Court. Um, and add secular schools that, that, that teach that Christianity is to blame for the Crusades, Christianity is to blame for suppressing science. Christianity is to blame for oppressing women. Um, they, uh, we have school curricula that uh, put Christianity in a very negative light. Then you add those fringe Christians who come up with theories like cre creation science, trying to use science to uh, explain the Genesis 1 uh, in a literal sense, when Genesis 1 was never meant to be a scientific document to begin with. So stuff like this has created a, a hostility uh, between faith and science. Uh, you know, we have fringe Christians that are um, anti-vaxxers, for example. Then, then you add Christian groups that closely align with either the Republicans or the Democrats. But unfortunately, neither party is doing a good job exemplifying the Christian faith because th neither of their platforms uh, fully align with the Bible and much less their personal lives. How many politicians go into scandal? Uh, both sides accuse each other of not being moral enough. Both sides accuse each other of not being compassionate enough. So the stage has been set for Americans to believe that religion is crazy, evil, and uh, flat out unnecessary, like the stuff of fairy tales. You know, I, it's, you know, when I think about it, I, it would be like me turning Hindu, you know, like, yeah, does Hinduism have a lot of good teachings to offer? Yes. However, it's a little too foreign. It's a little too strange. I question the necessity uh, it, it has in my life, and uh, I'm pretty happy without it. So why make the drastic step of changing my life and turning Hindu? And I think that's where many Americans are at now. They're questioning the necessity. They feel comfortable enough, and why should they make such drastic changes, uh, including um, adopting their teachings on uh, sex and sexuality, which is a very emotional issue. Um, um, and they, many, many of them feel that, many people feel that they have to, quote, 
uh, act unnaturally uh, to, uh, to be Christian uh, in that area. Uh, so it's, it's a very difficult problem. Also add that in Europe, World War II uh, was the reason many Europeans have fallen in droves because how could such Christian nations uh, fight a war and destroy each other? Perhaps that means that religion is unnecessary. Uh, so anyways, going, going back to the question more directly, um, the church, I don't believe it's lost the war against abortion. Uh, support for abortion among the youth has dropped. Uh, the more we know scientifically about the fetus and what the fetus brain is capable of, uh, the more we observe the fetus with ultrasound, uh, support for abortion among the youth has dropped. Also, David Daleiden, the Catholic man who went undercover to uh, expose the selling of body parts by Planned Parenthood, he's caused many states to reduce their funding for Planned Parenthood. Uh, however, with sexual orientation, yeah, there is this, I sense this sense of relief in the church that it no longer has to support such an unpopular stance against gay marriage anymore. Um, you know, as more people uh, know somebody, have, have a, has a friend who's gay, um, they don't want their gay friend to suffer and they, they become convinced that not redefining marriage to include them is a form of hate. Uh, in fact, leftist Christians are winning because they have convinced the church that social justice is love. After all, who wouldn't want to have compassion for poor people, the homeless, immigrants, refugees, women, blacks, and so on. But here's the problem here. What are the proper parameters of this love? After all, Jesus did say, if you love me, then follow my commandments. He said to enter through the narrow path, not the wide path. He also said that blessed are those who are persecuted because they're righteousness. So Jesus was never popular. And, and Jesus was never about following um, social media or the popular crowd or the popular trends. In fact, he was a radical because he challenged the religious leaders of the time. He definitely did not preach positivity, love, and joy, and affirmation all the time. Um, so the bottom line is that uh, they're there, uh, there hasn't been a counter narrative uh, put in place to compete uh, with the, the popular Christian left. So you mentioned um, that Jesus was a radical and in, in, in my uh, experience, what I notice is radicals or revolutionaries make terrible politicians because uh, they don't know how to compromise. And that's kind of more of a job of a politician. So is actually a good segue into my last question, which is uh, what must Christianity do to regain its relevant relevance in politics and social issues? Well, it's definitely not by being more loving. <laughs> We've already tried that. Uh, we've already tried appearing softer on issues to bring more people to the community and not alienate them, but that's not working. So here, John, here's the irony of Christianity. The irony is that Christianity must maintain its countercultural, sometimes offensive edge to remain relevant. I mean, yeah, Christianity is offensive. You know, who wants to believe that they're a sinner? But that truth must be preached so that people are aware and that they say, wait a minute, hmm, maybe I do need to make some changes to my life. If Christianity does not maintain its, its edge like this, then, and instead just affirms everything that people do, then guess what? It becomes indistinguishable from the world and then it becomes irrelevant. So it's gotta maintain its edge to be relevant. Uh, we gotta, honestly, we just gotta go back to, to job number one, uh, preaching the gospel and job number two, preaching morality. You know, as late as 2005, you 
would hear churches preaching the gospel explicitly in every single Sunday sermon. You would hear churches preaching very clearly on moral issues, preaching very clearly that certain activities are sins and that they got to repent from them. I remember in high school every Sunday, I was taught to deny myself and pick up the cross. You know, it was a very the disciplinary aspects of the faith. But I'm not hearing that anymore. I don't hear the gospel clearly preached on Sunday anymore. I hardly hear anything about what's a sin and what's not anymore. These days, sermons are very amorphous and flowery, you know, stuff like, ooh, how to, how to encounter the Holy Spirit each day and how to improve the relationships with the people around you and, you know, how to uh, find true happiness, you know, uh, as you wake up every day. You know, churches have become, you know, group therapy sessions. Y yeah, it's good that we're addressing psychological issues like attachment theory and loss, addiction, trauma, absent parents, you know, Enneagram, you name it. That's, it's good that we're addressing these things, but that's not supposed to be a replacement for job one of the church, which is to, to preach the gospel. Also, um, I mentioned fatherlessness. Uh, the key for the church to become vibrant again is, is twofold. Number one, to show the love of the father. And number two, to be a place that cultivates positive masculinity and not just femininity. Um, like I said, so many problems that people do to, uh, are due to fatherlessness, including the problems of the black community. We're a fatherless generation. God is a father, uh, like I explained before, and it's time for people to understand the love of the father. But what is the love of the father? See, we've confused that with you know, being happy all the time, joyful all the time, and approving of everything that people do. But that's not what the love of the father is. John, you're a parent. So you understand that, like, you know, a, a child thinks that his dad's gonna, his dad hates him if his dad not, doesn't allow him to eat candy every day and mac and cheese every day. You know, a, a child would think that his dad hates him because of that. But is that hate? No, John, it's, it's the exact opposite, isn't it? It's because, it's because the father loves his son that a father will restrict him because a father wants what's best for the child. So, you know, we got to be willing to say, no, you can't eat candy and mac and cheese every day. We got to get out of this affirmation all the time mentality. We got to bring back discipleship. Uh, Jesus had his 12 disciples. We got to bring back discipleship in which people are clearly guided and mentored. A relationship and a friendship is formed first so that we could build a trust to teach morality. But at the same time, when people mess up, we don't condemn them. See, the father gets mad, but he's also understanding of why people mess up. And sometimes the father lets the child wrestle on his own and mess up on his own so that the child can come up with his own conclusions and learn better uh, through his own learning rather than by um, just because I told you so. Sometimes people got to learn the hard way and wrestle and mess up before they become enlightened. You know, in the past, I've heard from friends who said that, you know, they have you know, sin sexually and, and, and things like that. But, you know, do I condemn them? No. You know, I realize that they're human beings. At the time, they were not ready to live a more tempered life. And, and sometimes they got to sow their wild oats to realize that, yeah, the things of this world are unfulfilling. Uh, and that, hey, maybe there's something more enlightening and more uh, uh, satisfying and joyful that awaits them. So, you know, when, when my friends sin, I don't respond with condemnation, but I respond with understanding. Um, also, um, we got to be a place that cultivates masculinity. Uh, the church is 
feminized, let's face it. Yeah, it's the bride of Christ, but that doesn't mean we've got to sing love songs all the time or meet in groups where we share our feelings and swim in our feelings together and address our psychological issues. You know, that's woman stuff, okay? That's not the way women bond that way, but that's not the way men bond. Uh, men bond through battle. Spiritual, spirituality is a battle. You know, we're supposed to put on the armor of God and take the sword of the spirit. We need to address the challenge that faith is. We should have activity-based groups. You know, men bond through activities. I know, for example, some churches have gun shooting groups. I mean, how cool is that? We could have service projects that involve tasks like home building or painting. You know, we could fast together. The Orthodox Church does something right by emphasizing the physical challenge of faith and having lots of fasts. Uh, as a result, the Orthodox Church is one of the few that uh, is not disproportionately female. Um, and lastly, we gotta, we gotta bring back martyrdom. Christianity is built on martyrs. Um, we, may have, we may have come to a time where we need more martyrs. Okay, fine, maybe we don't wanna give our lives. <laughs> I don't, you know, but can we martyr our popularity? Can we martyr our friends? Can we martyr our finances or our career potential? You see, people, are, people have always been drawn to strong belief. And if belief is so strong that people are willing to martyr themselves, then it's gonna draw people because it shows that that belief must have been in something that's very real and very true. So we may have come to a time that we need martyrs again. James, uh, that's a very uh, clear defense for uh, Christianity to uh, become relevant again. Um, but would it be, would it be possible for them to, for Christians to be relevant and to join politics and to join and to provide a third voice in social issues? Or do you think that's an area that Christianity should stay away from? I think, I think this idea of separation of church and states is, is a fiction. Um, let's face it, uh, you know, no matter what you believe, you know, you're going to incorporate your belief in every aspect of your life, the way you treat your family, the way you handle your work, the way, what kind of activities you engage in, the kind of friends that you hang out with, uh, no matter what you do, uh, you're going to incorporate your belief. Uh, so uh, when people say separation of church and state, um, what, what they, what I think what they really mean is, uh, rather than, you know, openly uh, openly admit uh, their uh, Christian influence uh, in their politics. Let's replace this with this, uh, this amorphous, uh, these amorphous notions that are somewhat derived from Christianity, but, uh, but uh, also like um, include some type of neutrality, you know? So yeah, we're, we're loosely influenced by Christianity, but in, but uh, publicly, you know, we're, we're neutral uh, and, uh, Publicly, we're not going to, you know, um, incorporate any one religion or another. But the bottom line is, you're still going to incorporate whatever it is you believe in 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 the way you live uh, your daily life and uh, in the way that you work and uh, in your career and uh, take care of your family and so on. Um, as far as uh, should should Christ is there a way for Christians to uh, to be involved in in social issues and the government? I, I do agree that's, that was the vision of, of Jesus. Um, 
Um, yes, although although Jesus uh, didn't uh, uh, explicitly uh, argue any political positions while he was on the earth, uh, eventually uh, the, uh, the the Roman Empire uh, changed and uh, officially started adopting Christianity as Christianity became more popular. Um, so, but right now we're not in a position where uh, we can be a big voice in. Uh, political and social issues because there simply aren't enough of us. Uh, so we are too small. For example, if you really want to um, um, make this country pro-life, for example, then we got to evangelize. A poll showed that only about 20% of Americans uh, support an absolute abortion ban. Uh, so who who is the church to insist that we need an absolute abortion ban right now? The, obviously, the country is not ready. There are not enough people that believe in it. So if you want to get to a point where that's actually a viable political position, well, then you got to evangelize. And that's why I said earlier that um, uh, preaching the gospel is, is job number one. Uh, before you can uh, affect any political change on this earth, uh, you got to evangelize and you got to have enough support uh, uh, for those things. But yes, um, I, think, I think we need to envision, you know, Christians... Um, um, being represented and being a voice in, in all industries and in all sectors of our society and government. Yeah, I, you and I had had this discussion before. I, I feel that there, it wasn't necessary for the Christians to marry themselves or handcuff themselves to the conservative party, to the Republicans. Uh, I don't see why a party that was fiscally conservative uh, and socially liberal uh, could not be established. Uh, I was I always thought that it was a mistake for the moral majority to stick with the Republican side, where I think they would have been more powerful as a third party, and not necessarily to elect their own officials, but to just force issues onto the platform of either party, of either Democrats or Republicans. Uh, James, do you think that? in the future that there should be a third completely separate point of view or political point of view and on social issues that is separate from the political the two political parties or should they join uh, uh one side or the other mm. why john i know you think so <laughs> um well it Here's the, the, the thing that I see with uh, the danger that I see with uh, third parties is um, that if, let's say, you know, a, quote, conservative vote, a culturally conservative vote is, uh, might be the majority, but then, you know, that vote is going to be split between, you know, the second and third parties. So although there might be more conservative voters, the, the quote, liberal vote is going to win because the conservative uh, vote is split among two parties. Um, so I, I think uh, a multi-party system um, is a good idea, but you'll notice that in countries that do have multi-party systems, what they do then is the, the legislature then becomes remade uh, proportionally uh, based on the results of, of the, uh, the general election. So there's gotta be a way for uh, the vote to be uh, represented Otherwise, we're going to have a crazy result where, like, you know, the winning party 
is going to take all the power, but it only had like 30% of the vote. And, and, and that's, that's a lot of the frustration that's going on right now, you know, with, with, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, both, uh, well, we have uh, Donald Trump who has, was elected, but he did not win the popular vote. So, you know, there's a lot of frustration with the electoral college right now because of that, because people are not uh, being heard. Well, I'm, I'm not necessarily arguing for a parliament, parliamentary system, but more or less just having uh, the Democrats or Republicans uh, catering to the third religious party who is obviously a minority. So, for example, if uh, the, the Republicans wanted a certain issue passed, they would have to compromise with the, let's call it the Christian party. And uh, the Christian party would say, fine, if you guys want that to pass, we could support it. But then you also have to support uh, X, Y, Z, uh, marriage or fertility right issues that we agree upon. And they could do the exact same thing to the Democrats. So if you, okay, Democrats, if you want your position to be passed, uh, then you must agree on these the same set of beliefs that we have in the legislation that we want to pass. So it's not necessarily creating a deadlock in, in, in the houses of, of, of Congress, like both houses of Congress, but it's more of like a bargaining chip so that the Christian party can have a voice and can have a say. And now this doesn't have to necessarily be a Christian party. It could be a Hispanic party, it could be a black party, it could be an Asian party, whatever it is. But the the strategy is to not marry itself to either side, to either aisle, but to be used as a bargaining chip or a kingmaker uh, uh, in, 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 in legal issues so that their voice is definitely put onto the table. And this would avoid uh, silencing or uh, disrupting the system too much, uh, uh, the status quo, uh, as you may. But I, I just find it uh, confounding that uh, no one has thought about this or no one has even tried to, to apply it. And when you, when you tell me that 60% of the population is still checking the box Christian, uh, that is still a huge voting block that is underutilized or is being hijacked by the conservatives uh, side and not being shared with the democratic side. Uh, and I feel that that's a huge mistake on the, that third party, that Christian or the Asians or the black or the Hispanic parties. I think that's a huge uh, disconnect in their, their strategy and enforcing their issues onto the table. And they're just simply waiting for them to be the majority. Like, oh, we just have to wait till the minorities take over uh, the population and, and, and whites are actually now a minority. I think that's a huge mistake. Uh, I think that their voice can be heard right now and that they should be able to uh, uh, strategically pull off their goals. And I feel that uh, uh, we need, it's time uh, for this to happen, uh, especially right now since the, with the pandemic and with the uh, the protests that are going on right now and the fragmentation of the country and and uh, the factioning, the, the breaking up of uh, parts into parts. 
and I feel it's an opportune time, but I'm not sure if anybody will have the courage nor the ability to, to step out. And I, I feel it's unfortunate um, somebody with 60% uh, of the population is not able to take advantage of this and they're being silent. They're being silent and I have no, not sure why they're being silent, but uh, I feel that there's a missed opportunity here. Yeah, I think you make a good point. Um, yeah, uh, it is still, the Christian voting block is still a large voting block. However, um, it has become racially diverse. And uh, you uh, once again uh, make the good point that this country is going to uh, become mostly non-white in about 10 to 15 years. Um, and, you know, non-whites, when you think about them, they, are, uh, they tend to be more religious uh, than white people. Uh, they tend to be more culturally conservative uh, than white people, but uh, they are not attracted to the Republican Party because of some of the platform of the Republican Party. So, uh, yeah, one way to um, make these um, non-white Christians uh, represented in politics is to create a, a separate party or uh, political platform. Um, the a, a few pitfalls I see, however, are uh, there is still the notion that um, that the church needs to be separate from, from politics. Um, but uh, once again, you know, I think that we're uh, um, dropping our responsibility if we do so. I, I think as, as, Christ, as the Christian church, you know, uh, in, in Christian people uh, need representation in all uh, sectors of our society uh, be, because if, if they don't, then it creates a power vacuum for uh, the, sec the secularists to, uh, to take over. So, uh, you know, we can't say that we need to be separate from politics and then wonder why, you know, that the, the system is uh, as unjust as it is right now. You know, that's, that's it, that was our uh, lack of responsibility for not getting involved enough. However, you know, as we get involved, you know, we need to be, understand that uh, preaching the gospel clearly is still number one and things like, you know, psychotherapy and politics and, uh, um, you know, activities uh, and community building, that, those are secondary missions and, and uh, they are not uh, to replace job number one, which is uh, preaching the gospel. It's because we have not preached the gospel enough, clearly. We have not evangelized enough. We have not dedicated ourselves to that cause uh, that, um, that people have fallen away from the faith and have considered it irrelevant. And that's why we're in the weakened position we are where we're not leaders, but we're followers. You know, uh, James, uh, speaking specifically on the George Floyd uh, murder, uh, I haven't had one clear voice from the Christian. I hear, I hear what the politicians are saying. I hear what the conservatives, I hear uh, what the police, the Blue Lives Matter. I hear what the Black Lives Matter are saying. I don't hear one pastor uh, used to be uh, Reverend Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson and the Nation of Islam. I mean, they would be all over this. But I haven't even heard their voices in, 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 in George Floyd. Every, the whole world watched a man uh, suffocate to death over a period of nine months. I mean, nine minutes, sorry. And yet there's no outrage or no person going at, from the religious right, the Christians, that are even trying to throw in the towel and say, hey, this is what needs to happen. It's just complete silence. And I think this is a missed opportunity 
And I, I wish that there was somebody who would say, hey, this is our stance. This is the Christian stance. This guy should have not been murdered uh, in the way that he did. Or instead of just getting drowned out and being silent. And, and I, 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 I have to say that I am, I am disappointed. I am very disappointed in the, the uh, religious community for not stepping up and for allowing other people to be the sole voice. And it's, uh, it's, it's disheartening. And it just makes it hard not to, it makes it hard to believe in somebody that is in an entity or institution that's not willing to step up to face or uh, uh, to face injustice or try to correct the wrongs of society. Yeah, I, I'm disappointed also. Uh, I think the initial reaction to George Floyd has been to to follow uh, the pattern of social media. Uh, many churches have posted the black square, and uh, the immediate response was to uh, be introspective and to look within and to think about ways in which uh, the Christian church has been uh, complicit uh, in in racial issues. So rather than speak up immediately, uh, there was a uh, an introspection and. Uh, so therefore, uh, you did not see an immediate uh, reaction from, from the churches because they're busy looking inward. Um, but uh, I still think you're right. I still think there is room to, for the church to say some basic messages like, you know, stop the violence and increase the peace. Let's all love each other. Uh, we're all children of God. Um, that, that does not um, uh, stop the church from, you know, job number one, uh, which, is, which is preaching the gospel again. Um, you know, Jesus, uh, he suffered. He suffered unfairly. He took the death penalty for a, a crime he did not commit, but he, he rose again. He, uh, he came back to life uh, after death. Uh, he overcame death, which means that he is invincible. He is the king of overcoming suffering. He is the king of overcoming injustice. And, you know, if we believe in him as Lord and Savior, then we are saved and we enter the kingdom of God and we are reunited uh, with God forever in heaven. I think uh, right now is a good time, you know, for the gospel in, in the midst of uh, many people suffering and, um, um, and, and Jesus is the king of suffering and overcoming injustice. And uh, right now is a good time for people to hear that message. So yeah, there, uh, I, I, I too am a little disappointed that, uh, uh, that, that the church has been a little quiet. Uh, you haven't heard too much from uh, Al Sharp, even Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson, and uh, or even you know Cardinal Dolan, or uh, even uh, the the Rick Warrens of, of the world. I think I think a lot of a lot of it too is because the church uh, churches have not been able to meet in person. Um, so the 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 very uh, basic um, method for them to uh, do their work has been taken away from them. So as a result, they have lost. Uh, a lot of their capability, um, uh, and uh, right right now there's right now there is a pushback. Uh, 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 John MacArthur uh, he has uh, started to defy the the order, and uh, his church uh, in Los Angeles has met in person. Uh, also, there was a gathering uh, at the beach in San Diego of about five thousand. So you know, and and many churches here and there have have been defying uh, the Governor Newsom's orders. So. Um, um, that there is there is a sense that the church needs to be uh, uh, to to uh, 
power up again and to uh, play its role again and to uh, really uh, reach out and play its role in uh, attempting to unite the community. I, I, I hope for that. James, uh, last question. Are, are you going to personally try to help revive the Christian uh, voice in society in any way or are you uh, going to remain silent as well? Well, that's what this is for, right? Um, we're trying to find a third way out in the midst of competing dualism. Um, and I think we've identified that this is uh, an issue, the fact that the church has been largely silent. And uh, uh, we're trying to uh, come up with, uh, uh, with ways to change that. And, you know, I know I've spoken with my friends about it. I'm just one person. Uh, I'm not uh, influential in my church, or I don't have any, you know, I don't have a powerful position in my church. I'm just one man. People might not listen to me, but uh, I can speak to others around me, uh, and they might be uh, influential to those uh, uh, around them. So, you know, um, uh, let's, you know, this is a grassroots effort. Um, and uh, in, in the midst of uh, church leadership, uh, losing their voice and losing their power. The faith is going to continue on uh, as a grassroots effort. Well, James, it looks like you have some martyrdom in your, in your future. It looks like, uh, James, uh, I always learn a great deal when I speak to you and that's why I enjoy doing it so much. So this, this experience today was no different. I've learned so much and I thank you for, for sharing your viewpoints and allowing me to interview on you this one. Okay. Have a good, have a good uh, day, James. All right. Well, thank you so much. And you too. Have a good day.